Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank You uh, for the privilege of being in Your presence this morning to worship You, to honor You, to glorify You for who You are, what You have done for us in Jesus. We, we stand in awe even as we witness the baptism of little Winella. Once again, we stand in awe of how You would condescend and come into this world, Lord Jesus, as this little baby that You would be helpless like us, like Winella, and You would allow Yourself to be subjected to the humiliation of someone so great and glorious uh, to, to be clothed in flesh and to live a life like we have and then suffer the ultimate humiliation in Your death on the cross at the hands of wicked men who would not receive You, would not accept You, and then win victory over the grave as You rose again. Father, this story ought never grow old for us because it is the true story of the world and in that story we find hope and life and confidence. And as we face all kinds of things in our lives and in the world right now, that story presses into us and enables us to never despair because we know that, that this life is really a rehearsal for the life to come. And we remember that even as we look around and we see uh, new variants that are causing trouble around the world and, and again there is nervousness and anxiety among many about what it will do to our healthcare system and, and it's already having an effect on people's uh, Christmas plans and, uh, and, and, and it, it frustrates us, Lord. It frustrates us. Some of us are frustrated because we think, oh, this is overblown. Some of us are frustrated because we think, oh, this is worse than, than we're admitting. We're, we're frustrated. And we hear stories, Father, of this frustration uh, finding its, itself we, even entering into the life of the church and, and churches are frustrated and people are frustrated with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ about how we handle this and what, what, what is the best way uh, to move forward. And, and Lord, we, we, we admit we don't know. We have no playbook for this specific situation and so we look to Your Word and we see that You call us to gentleness and love and, and to stand up for truth and to... Uh, and to proclaim Jesus in the midst of all of this. And so we pray, Lord, that you will, you will continue to enable us to do that. We thank you for yesterday where we, in the name of Jesus, could, could share uh, of our abundance with those around us who have so much less. And we ask, Father, that, that the gift that we gave will be a, a pointer to the giver that it will not just be a, 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 sent, a, a belief that, that a church does a good thing in the community, but that it will be received as a, a token of the hope of the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that, that the Christian material, the Bibles and the coloring books, etc., that, that were included in those baskets will be opened and used. It is through Your Word that people discover 
their Savior. And so we pray that these folks will discover Jesus in these, in these materials. Father, we lift before you our church purchase. We would love to make this our permanent home so that we can use it as a, as a base to proclaim the, the Lordship of Jesus in this town. Father, we, we know that there is, there is a deep need for that in this town. We know that there are many who don't know Christ. We would be honored if we would have this space to use strategically to carry on our mission of, of enabling every Dundas resident to have a meaningful encounter with Jesus. But we hold this dream, Father, with an open hand. We are honest about what we want. But we know that You are good and that whatever You decide will be for our good. Father, we pray that as we open Your Word this morning, that Your Spirit would rest mightily upon us, giving us the ability to understand it and receive it, be changed by it, so that when we leave this place, Father, we love You a little more. We're more boldly proclaiming You to our friends and neighbors, following You more closely, glorifying You more purely. Because Your glory is what it's all about. May we live for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Again, this morning our scripture reading is from the Gospel according to John chapter 1. We've been uh, walking through these remarkable first 13, 14 verses uh, together for the last few weeks and we're continuing again this morning. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light that, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, which he came to that... Yeah. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And now this is our text for this morning. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned when, uh, when, we, when we began the reading, as I mentioned, um, we are looking at these remarkable verses from John chapter 1, and we're making our way through them to understand uh, who Jesus is, what He came to do, what the point of Christmas 
is. So we've, we've seen that Jesus is the Logos, His being, He is the God-man, He is both 100% human and 100% divine in the same person. We also know, learned a, a couple weeks that, ago that through Jesus, He came to bring life and light. In other words, Jesus came to make spiritually dead people spiritually alive people. He didn't come to bring necessarily physical life or biological life. He came to bring spiritual life. As it says in verse 13, that we might be children born, listen to this, not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, God implants His divine nature within our hearts, the Holy Spirit, who is the, in a sense, the very lifeblood of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He takes up residence within us to make us spiritually alive. And one of the reasons I'm emphasizing that for you is because people very often misunderstand the Christian faith. People often come to the Christian faith this way. They say, My life has become unmanageable. My life is difficult. I'm experiencing some hard things right now and and I've got problems. Maybe I have an addiction problem that I can't overcome. Maybe I have relationship problems that I can't overcome. I have have a problem in in my life. My life has become unmanageable and therefore I need a change. What I need is, is I need to get religion. And so they investigate religion and they start doing religious things. They start coming to church, for example. They start reading their Bible. They start uh, praying. They may even start volunteering and these kinds of things. And, and, and if they do that, the danger is, is that they set themselves up for tremendous disappointment. Because their thinking has been this, my way of life isn't working. And so what I need to do is, is I need to trade in that way of life for another way of life. And as they embrace the so-called Christian way of life, they think to themselves, well, now my life will go better because this is a, a better system and this is a better way to live. But here's the thing, if you do that, you will crush yourself with despair. Because if you know anything about the Christian life as it's defined for us in the Bible, the Christian life is impossible to live. You read through the Bible and you see that there are many rules, there are many uh, um, requirements that, that people are supposed to live by. You go to the Sermon on the Mount and you hear what Jesus has to say about how human beings are to live and he says to, to, to people, don't commit adultery. And people say, yeah, you know, we've got to be careful with our sexuality. But Jesus goes further and he says, those who look on a woman lustfully have committed adultery with them in their hearts and everybody goes, wait a minute, I'm an adulterer. People know that we're supposed to live in without being violent to one another. And they say, you know what, I've got to deal with my anger problem. And so I'm, I'm going to learn how to not lash out in anger and violence. But Jesus says that if you have anger in your heart, you have committed, if you have hatred in your heart against another person, you have committed murder. And so when you look at the rules, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, you look at the, at the rules around Christianity, at the standards, so to speak, of, of how people are supposed to live, you realize You can't measure up. Nobody can measure up. If Christianity is just a way of life, if it's just about 
trading in a set of principles to live by for another set of principles to live by, you will be utterly crushed. Christianity is not first and foremost about that. Yes, there are rules about how you're supposed to live. Yes, there are calls to obedience. We talked about it in Winella's baptism. We are called to respond in faith to the gospel and obedience to the gospel. That's what we're called to do, absolutely. But Christianity is not about making better people. Not fundamentally. It's about making new people. It's about being born again. It's about being offered a new nature, a new life. Now, who are these people that Jesus came to create? Well, that's what verse 11 describes for us. It says, He came to that which was His own, or or sorry, but His own did not receive Him. And then in verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be, become children of God. These new people are children of God. Now, some of us might be saying to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I thought all of us, aren't we all children of God in some way, shape, or form? And the answer is yes and no, but mostly no, we're not. Yes, the Bible says that God is our creator, He created absolutely everything. And so in one sense, all human beings who walk the planet are children of God in the sense that He has created them. This is what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 when he says that we are all His offspring. He's quoting actually a Greek philosopher when he says that. But John's point here, saying that we have the right to become children of God, is not about having been created by God. It's about having a filial father-child relationship with God. See, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they had a a filial relationship, a father-child relationship with God in the garden. But when they chose to rebel against Him, when they said we're going to be our own lords and masters, we're going to decide for ourselves how we are to live, they were cut off from that relationship. And all human beings since that time, in a sense, are spiritual orphans. Spiritually dead, spiritual orphans. And Jesus Christ came to restore that relationship. You notice that John says, to all who receive Him, He gives the right to become children of God. You can't become something you already are because you're already it. I can't become a human being because I am a, a human being already. And so, that is what Jesus came to do. To make people become children of God. Well, how do they do that? Paul, James, Paul, James, John, all these names. John says that it's for those who receive him. Those are the people who become children of God. There's a condition to becoming a child of God, and that condition is receiving Jesus. Now, what does it mean to receive Jesus? We've talked about this before, but we're going to talk about it again very quickly. John says it means to believe in his name. So how do you receive Jesus in order that you might become a child of God? You you believe in His name. Now, don't assume that you understand what that means. Well, you can if you're a, if you're a long-living Christian who's been studying the Bible for a long time. But people ought not to assume that they understand what that means because there are a lot of people out there who would say, "Well, I know, I believe in Jesus. I believe He was a great man. 
I would believe he was a tremendous leader. I believe he was one of the greatest ethical teachers of all time. I believe that he was a spiritual leader in a sense. He was some kind of great guru who was able to, to show us how we can connect with the divine or the transcendent. Lots of people would say that they believe somehow in Jesus. But notice that that's not exactly how John puts it here. He says, believe in his name. If you said to me, I believe in you, Paul, you'd probably be saying something like, you know, you can do it. I think you got what it takes. That kind of thing. But if you said, I believe in your name, Paul, wouldn't that sound weird? We don't talk to each other that way, right? Why, why, why does John use this language? Well, because it was not weird to the Jews. To believe in God's name, according to the Jews, meant to believe in his nature, to believe in his essence, to believe in his character, to believe in the sum total of the revelation of who he says he is. And this gets picked up in the New Testament when people like Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, for example, he says, uh, he says, therefore God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and Hebrews actually brings this up in, in chapter 1, verse 4, when it says, so he, that is Jesus, became as much superior to the angels, listen for this, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. When John says the way you become a child of God is by receiving Jesus, what he's saying is, is that you are receiving the sum total of Christ's revelation about himself. The very thing we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. To become a child of God means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh come into the world as the sole person in history who contained the Godhead in his person and lived for us and died for us and rose again from the grave for us and now reigns for us. It's not just, hmm, I believe that Jesus was someone who lived many, many years ago. No, it's believing this revelation about himself. To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. What John is talking about here is the biblical doctrine of adoption. And let me say that this is it. This is the key to understanding how any believer in Jesus is to live their lives. It's all wrapped up in this astounding word and this remarkable doctrine called adoption. If, if you can realize this in your life, friends, if you can understand and you can wrap your heart around and you can live existentially out of this astounding truth that you are an adopted child of God, I promise you it will absolutely revolutionize your life. And as a result of being adopted as a child of God, there are benefits that you 
experience. There are rights, even, that you have that no other people on the planet get to enjoy. Now, we, we can't do justice to the whole thing this morning because the implications are so incredibly far-reaching. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus. We're going to drill down on sort of the foundational truth that the doctrine of adoption teaches, the, the, the foundational truth that being children of God teaches. And we're going to unpack that. And we're going to see how it actually has an effect on your life. So here we go. At the heart of the doctrine of adoption is the fact that we have a right to God's fatherly love. We have the privilege and the right, believe it or not, to God's fatherly love. And every other benefit flows out of that. Now, some of you might say to yourself right away, well, I'm going to struggle with this because, you see, my earthly parents, my earthly father, was not a great father. And I know that there are probably people in this room or watching online who have had bad experiences with their earthly father. Maybe their earthly father was cold, or maybe they were kind of neglectful or kind of distant, and, and in some cases, certainly, that there are, there are some who have experienced abuse at the hands of their father. And so the idea of understanding God as your father, you say, that's very, very difficult for me, that's very hard for me, but, but, but stick with me here for a second. I submit to you that actually your soul yearns for the perfect fatherly love of God. Because you see, you, you've had experiences with a bad father and you know that there are bad experiences with a bad father. You, you, your heart aches at the fact that you don't have the kind of relationship with your father that you ought to have. There is something you know is missing and I submit to you that what's missing in all our lives is the fatherly love, the perfect fatherly love of God. Even those of us who have had the best earthly fathers, what we've experienced is simply a dim reflection. A dim reflection of what God's fatherly love means for those who are His children. We need a perfect father. And John says that when you receive Jesus and believe in His name, you have it. So what does that mean? To have God's fatherly love means that you have His provision, that you have His care. Fathers have a duty of care for their children, right? You, you need to meet the needs of your children. Uh, you know that we've been part of the foster system and there are many people who have been part of the foster system helping the foster system and in, in Hamilton over the years here, and the language that they use is a child, when they come to you, they come into care. And when they leave, go back to their, to their family or they get adopted or wherever they go, they, they go out of your care. And oftentimes children are apprehended from their families because those families are failing to provide the necessities of life, the necessaries of life. They're not meeting the needs of their children. Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Your heavenly Father cares for them, but you are far more important to Him than, than birds or flowers. And, and Peter says in 1 Peter 5, He says, cast all your anxieties on Him, on God. Why? Because He cares for you. 
To have the fatherly love of God Himself means that you have His care. Now, we have to be careful with this. We have to be very careful with this because we sometimes think of this in a very superficial way, you know? We think, oh, God cares for me. Well, that means, that means maybe God will, will, will just sort of give me what I want, but you've got to understand, God is a perfect Father. He is absolutely attentive towards you. He is thoughtful about you, and He will always give you what is best for you. He will always meet your needs. He, will, he anticipates what you need. He's on the lookout for what you need. Which is why Jesus, in, in Matthew, when, in the Sermon on the Mount, when He teaches us to pray, the thing He says before He teaches us the Lord's Prayer is, it's very fascinating, He says, he says to us, uh, go, go to your Father in prayer because He knows what you need before you ask Him. There are things that you need in your life, there are things that I need in my life, I don't even know I need them. They haven't been revealed to me yet. I haven't understood yet because I, I see life on a very narrow scale and, a dim, and, and it's a dim, a dim picture of my life that I have. But God, who sees everything, who knows everything, he, has, he doesn't have this narrow picture. He has the full picture and He sees absolutely purely and clearly. And He knows what we need. He knows what is best for us. He knows what, what, what is what is. What is required for us? His goal is to make us like His Son, who is our elder brother. If you become a child of God, that means Jesus is your brother. His goal is to shape us in His image and to make us like Him. And so He will give us what we need. Now listen, He's not saying, Jesus is not saying that God will give us what we want. He's saying He will give us what we need. And that's a very important distinction. See, there are going to be times in your life, friends, and times in my life too, where, where God is actually going to deny you the thing that you want most deeply in order to give you what you need. Because He is a perfect Father. Listen, every, every kid gets this, I think. I know my kids get this forever, for, for sure because they're pretty strategic. You know when you were growing up and you had to ask your dad for something? You knew you needed to test the mood, right? What kind of mood is dad in right now? Is he in a good mood? Is he in a bad mood? Do I have a shot at getting what I want or not? Because you know, and my kids will be honest, they know that, that there are times where they know that dad's in a grumpy mood and if they ask dad for something, dad will simply say no, not based on the merits of the request. But I'll just say no because I'm in a bad mood. Because I don't want to deal with it. Because i got my head full of other stuff. Whatever the silly excuse is, I'm going to say no. But God is not like that. God is not an emotionally unstable father who you have to, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, is this a good time to ask? Is this a bad time to ask? No. He, he, is, 
He is a purely perfect Father who cares for you and, and, and will give you exactly what it is you need. Our problem is, is that we don't trust Him because we compare Him to our earthly fathers. We think that God holds out on us. We think that God is kind of stingy. We think that God is, is saying no to things because he, He's like in a bad mood like I might be with my kids. C.S. Lewis writes about this in in The Weight of Glory. It's It's a beautiful passage where he says, I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something other than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid but which would be a real delight if only we were allowed to get it. You get what Lewis is saying? He's saying we think that, that God holds out on us, that he's, he's keeping joy from us, that there's something that we could want and that we ought to have and it would bring us tremendous joy and God, because he's capricious and because he's like the Grinch that stole Christmas or something, he's just kind of holding it back for us like a grumpy dad. And Lewis says that's ridiculous. It's foolishness to think of God that way, to compare Him like a poor earthly father. He goes on and he says this. He says, the thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is what God is trying to give us as quickly as He can, or it is a false picture of what He is trying to give us. A false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. He knows what we want even in our vilest acts and he is longing to give it to us. Here's what Lewis is saying. You got your heart set on something. You think it's going to be so good. You think it would be so good for you to have it. You think, oh, if I could just get it, my, then I'll really sing. Then my life will really be great. But God denies it from you and you think, God, why are you holding this back from me? This must be a good thing for me. But it, the fact is, is because you're a sinner and because you don't see everything perfectly, you, don't have, you only have that narrow focus, etc. God has held it back from you and if he hadn't held it back from you, if he gave you the revelation to know exactly what it is you're really asking for and what the consequences of getting that thing would actually be, you would be startled, you would be horrified, you would turn around and run the other way. Even non-believers know this principle is true. Oscar Wilde, who lived an incredibly licentious and decadent life, he said, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. God only denies us the desires of our hearts ever and only because of love. And maybe you say to yourself, well, sure, Paul, yeah, I I get that. I mean, if I want sinful things and he's going to deny me those things, that's fine. But what about good things? What about things like a 190-year-old church property in the middle of one of the most prestigious neighborhoods in the city of Hamilton? Where if you could get it, Oh, the light you could shine for Jesus in the neighborhood. 
The glory that, that could be given to God as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus and as you meet the needs of the, the community in order to open up opportunities to tell people about this wonderful Father love that they could have access to if they would just repent of their sin, admit their need for a Savior, turn their backs on their wicked ways and embrace Him and live in His love. What a, what a story that would be! Now you know I wrote the sermon for me, right? <laughs> Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We see such a small sliver of the story, guys. In 1949, China went through the revolution of Mao Zedong and it became communist China. And one of the first things the Chinese did was they kicked out all the foreign missionaries. All these Christian missionaries who had spent so many decades trying to bring the gospel to China were sent packing, you're gone, you're out of here. And they shut the borders and didn't let them back in. And people were in an uproar, pleading with God, God, why would you do this? Why is all this work is falling apart? You've heard of Hudson Taylor? and the work that he did in China, among others, and you think, Lord, why would you do this? Why would you? We were so close, and, and you kicked them all out. You let this happen. Why did you let this happen and shut the borders? Sixty years later, there are more Christians worshiping in China on any given Sunday than all of North America combined. And the experts who know about these kinds of things and who, who do the research, etc., they say, looking back, we could never have guessed, but looking back, the best thing that ever happened to the church in China was that all the missionaries got booted. Because it required indigenous, domestic, local leadership to step up, take the reins, of leadership in these fledgling churches and to do the hard work of putting their very lives on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ, being thrown in jail and sometimes even being killed for that, that, that message of Christ. And as Tertullian said so many centuries ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and that's precisely what happened in China. How on earth could we ever have anticipated that? We couldn't. You can't. God denies us at times because He cares for us. And He provides for us as we need. And one day, this is the last thing, one day, He will give us an inheritance that exceeds our wildest dreams. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we might share in His glory. 
Now, what Paul is saying is, is that we get the inheritance. And what's the inheritance? Well, Jesus is our older brother. Jesus is the one who's already received the inheritance. And he says in John chapter 3, he says, the Father loves the Son and gives Him all things. So what do we get? I'm not even sure. But apparently it's everything. There's a place in Revelation where it says that we will get the morning star. What's the morning star? Some people say it's Jesus. Some people say it's a symbol of, 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 of glories beyond our wildest dreams. All I know is, is that Jesus Christ lost the fatherhood of God. He lost the provision. He lost the care when He was on that cross dying for you and me. He cried out, my God, my God, my God why have you forsaken me? And He received no care. He received no provision. The love of the Father was turned away from Him in that moment so that after after he experienced hell for you and me, he rose victorious over the grave and he says to us, he says, my victory is your victory, my inheritance is your inheritance and you and I will stand before him one day in glory, in, in, in beauty and majesty beyond our wildest dreams where every flower will be so startlingly beautiful that if you were in another place you would be tempted to worship it for its majesty but it will be yours. These are the unblushing promises of the Word of God. When God adopts you as His child, He loves you and He treats you like His own son. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Friends, you don't get the glory without the ghastly. You don't get the crown without the cross. You will suffer. You will feel disappointed. You will experience loss. You will look at a beautiful 1.5 acre property and perhaps God will say no to you. And you will grieve. I promise you, I will grieve if that is His answer. But... the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and one day everything will be yours. And every good thing that He may deny you in this life will not even be worth comparing to the riches you will enjoy in the next life. Because He loves you. I'll close with this. I've told many of you this before, but it, it, it's such a good analogy and it never ceases to astound me. My two older sisters are from my mother's first marriage. And so they were adopted by my father. They're not his natural children, they're his adopted children. I didn't even know till I was at least 10 years old. I had no clue. My dad sat me down. He said, I think I better tell you something that you should learn now rather than on the schoolyard. And he told me, and I was shocked. And one of the reasons I was shocked was because I had no idea. I had no idea. You know why I had no idea? 
because my father made no distinction between his natural-born child and his adopted children. And you might say to yourself, well, that's how it should be. That's how it should be, isn't it? If you're going to adopt a child, you should love them as you would your own natural child. Well, fine. If that's how it should be for you and me who are sinful human beings, how should it be for the God who is sinless and perfect in every way? Can you believe that God loves you the way he loves his son? I want to. What kind of people would we be if we really believed that? Let's pray. Father, we cannot even begin to absorb the gospel story. It is too it is too outrageous to be fake. No one would come up with this story other than the divine creator of all things. Lord, please root these powerful truths into our hearts and change us in order that we might display your glory for a world that is aching for this Father love. In his name we pray, amen.